0: Well, good morning, morning, it is nice to be with you this morning. For those who don't know me, my name is Evan, and I'm on staff here at the church. Um, And I want to just open this morning by just reminding us, last week, Pastor Ben uh, skipped a little bit ahead and uh, preached from uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 through 15. Uh, And then today, like we said last week, we're not going to skip over anything. Uh, So we're going to go back and we're going to look at these first eight verses of chapter 2 today. Uh, But before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer uh, as we seek to uh, hear from him this morning. So let's pray. Father God, I just want to thank you for this time, Lord, that we can gather together as a family of believers uh, and worship your name. Father, when we say that we are a family, we mean that, Lord. We do life with each other. We love one another. And Father, I pray that we see you in the midst of all of that. And so today, as we look to seek your word, Lord, I pray that uh, we as a family will be able to walk through this scripture, that we will be able to learn uh, from you in all things. So guide our steps here today, and we ask this all in the matchless name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So a few months ago, I made a decision to fix an issue at my house, at our townhouse that Janine and I live in, and if you know anything about me... I enjoy figuring out how things work. Uh, If there's an instruction manual present, I will look at it, uh, but I enjoy just tinkering with things and trying to figure out uh, how the things work. It helps me to understand the intricacies uh, and helps me get a a better knowledge of things for the future. So the issue that I was attempting to fix at our house was uh, there was a light switch and a fan switch in our bathroom. Uh, but they were flopped Uh, and what i mean by that is when you walk in normally the first switch is the light and then the second switch is the fan Uh, it was flip-flop so the first switch was the fan and it might not seem like a big issue but over the time that i was living there it just really bugged me Uh, and so i just i decided one day that i was going to fix that Uh, now here's the thing i don't know a ton about electrical wiring Uh, I I know enough that I'm not going to electrocute myself, thankfully, uh, but I don't know a ton about it. So I went turned off the breaker, I made the switch, it was fine, no problem. Now looking back on the situation, I know what I did not do correctly. Uh, The problem came because I did not properly ground the wire. So when I turned the breaker on, it blew the whole switch and caused some fireworks in my bathroom. Um, after uh, some scowling from my wife, uh, I looked up some videos on how to fix things. Uh, I uh, went. Uh, YouTube was great, I was able to find videos on how to do it and I made a trip to Home Depot. Uh, went down, uh, made my way to the lighting aisle and I just stood there because there are, I did not realize this, but there are a ton of different light switch options. Uh, I didn't realize that there were light switches that had Wi-Fi on them that you could connect to your phone and cause it to dim by two lumens and whatnot. There's also these light switches that have, uh, like their touch screen or voice-activated light switch thing. I, what, what in the world? I, you might have known that. I did not know that. Um, but after standing there for a few minutes uh, and looking apparently confused, this older lady who works there at Home Depot walked up to me and she just kind of stood there and uh, she was like, well, there sure are a lot of them, aren't there? <laughs> took, took me down a little bit made me feel humble. Um, but after some talking with her, I was, uh, she was able to help me get that original light switch that I had uh, and able to uh, go check out. But as I was walking uh, to the checkout aisle, I just, I couldn't help but thinking, what is the essential purpose of a light switch? It's to turn off and on the light, right? Um, and, and it just got me thinking that, you know, as we go through life, whatever that might be, we, we, can, be, we can get lost with all of these additional accessories of life. We, we kind of forget what the essential purpose of things are at times. And this... Uh, It led me to think about the church. You know, there are a lot of churches who do a lot of good things, meaningful things. uh, But sometimes those things, we can get lost in those things. And so it led me to ask the question, what is the essential thing that the church is supposed to do? What is the essential purpose for the church? And so as we walk through this passage this morning, Uh, My goal here and my hope is that we we see that uh, this is a text that has Paul's instructions for the church about what the essential purpose for the church is to be. And I would say that this purpose is to pray for and proclaim the gospel to all kinds of people because God desires their salvation. That's kind of our big thought here today. We pray for and proclaim the gospel to all kinds of people Because God desires their salvation. So if you would, let's go ahead and open our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Uh, We're going to be in the first eight verses. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to grab them around the room, or you can use your phone. That's fine as well. Uh, But it will be up on the big screen. Uh, Once you get there, if you don't mind standing for the reading of God's holy word. This is the word of the Lord. And there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher to the Gentiles in faith and in truth. I desire then that in every place men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Here ends the reading of God's holy word. He, might be he may be seated. So the first point this morning as we open up our message is, uh, is the priority of prayer. That's the first thing we see in our passage here today. In chapter 1, we saw how Paul provided a foundation, a gospel foundation, for why he decided to write this letter to Timothy. He commands Timothy and the church at Ephesus to guard the gospel, to celebrate the gospel, and to fight for the gospel. Now based on that foundation, Paul now gives us what we would consider to be practical application for the church in chapter 2. The opening words of this section, first of all, the first thing. Chapter chapter 1, it dealt with this issue of false teachers and what it looks like to be a faithful minister of the gospel. And so we must ask our question, how is it that we guard this gospel? How do we celebrate and fight for the gospel? Well, the first thing Paul says is that we pray. Verse 1, First of all, then I I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. And in this verse, Paul's instructing Timothy and tells him here who we are to pray for. And for emphasis on this, Paul, he uses four different words, each having to do with prayer. Uh, And he urges that, that Timothy make supplications, that he make prayer, intercessions, and thanksgiving. And each of these words, they're very similar to one another, but they have slightly different meanings. The first is supplications. Supplications, they're basically uh, petitions, meaning that we're asking for the fulfillment of a definite need. We're, uh, we're asking for a particular illness to uh, be removed or that evil would, would be replaced by good. Supplication is that humble request to God regarding a specific circumstance. Second word is prayer. Now, prayer, it, it's, it's a much more general meaning. It can cover all forms of reverent uh, communication to God, it can mean supplication, it can mean confession, uh, it can mean intercession, adoration, thanksgiving, etc. But this word, prayer, given in the context of this passage, is more likely to mean that um, it's the fulfillment of needs that are always present. So supplication, it's the fulfillment of a need that in a, that's in a specific situation, whereas prayer, it's covering this general um, situation that's always kind of occurring. Third, we see intercession. And this term, it's very difficult to translate into English. When we hear the word intercession, I'm sure many of us think of the, uh, of it, the definition kind of being a pleading on behalf of others, a pleading for on behalf of others. And while that's accurate, this term does go beyond Uh, that specific meaning it can also mean meeting with someone in order to converse freely and so in this verse when we see intercession uh, we must understand that it is the pleading for or pleading in the interest of others while holding nothing back in any way that's what it means for us to intercede we are to come before God in a vulnerable way And and we're to make our requests known to him on behalf of another we intercede for our family members who do not know the Lord. That's an example. The last term Paul uses here is thanksgiving, and I think scholar William Hendrickson describes it uh, in a great way. He, he says that it is expressed gratitude. It, it completes the circle so that the blessings that come from God return to him in the form of our expressed gratitude. That's our thanksgiving. When God answers our prayers, we return to him with a thankful heart. So we are to pray, we're we're, we're to have supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving. All right, we get the point, Paul. We're just supposed to pray. Prayer is important. But whom do we pray for? Whom do we pray for? And we find the answer at the end of verse 1 and going into verse 2. Paul writes, First of all, then, I urge supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful in quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So first, Paul says that we are to pray for all people. The phrasing here is used several times uh, in this passage, and it presents a complex debate that that scholars debate about all the time. Uh, There are certain people that ask uh, a few questions here. First, does the phrase all people literally mean every single man, woman, and child on the face of this planet? Do we pray for each of them by name? Does it only mean a select group of people, all of whom are saved? Uh, what does this mean? And these are just a couple of the questions that get tossed around for this phrase, for all people. And we're going to discuss this a little bit more in depth as we get into our second point. But for now, I will, I'm going to offer what I consider to be a better translation for this phrase. Uh, You may disagree with me, but at this, like we always say, when we deal with complex issues, it's it's okay to disagree. Come talk to me. I would love to show you my explanation for why uh, I'm going to make this translation. Um, But with that being said, I think a better translation for all people here would be to pray for every kind of person. To pray for every kind of person. What do I mean by that? Well, when Paul writes this, his point is not that Every Christian is commanded to pray for each individual person across all of the world. As evidenced by chapter 2, the context, or verse, verse 2 of uh, chapter 2, Paul was talking about different kinds of people. He says to pray for kings. He says to pray for those who are in high, high positions in authority. And these are examples he gives of people in which uh, we are to pray for. In the Gospel of Matthew, it's recorded that when John the Baptist was baptizing people, all of Jerusalem, all of Judea, all of the region came to be baptized and repent of their sins. Does that mean that every single person in all of these places came to be baptized of their sins? No. Matthew here, he's making this generalization to say that different kinds of people from different kinds of places are coming to be baptized. And in the same way, Paul uses this phrase, all people, to generalize a statement regarding every kind of person that we are to pray for. And this is not the only time that Paul uses this phrasing either. In in, in the letter to Titus, chapter 3, Paul addresses the issue of submitting to authority. He writes, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, and to be gentle And to show courtesy to all people. In that particular passage, Paul is instructing Titus how to remind the people to live upright and godly lives. He tells Titus to remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities uh, and to be kind and courteous. And Paul here, he uses that phrase, all people, again, representing all different kinds of people. And so as we return to the context of 1 Timothy, we see that that Paul here, he's writing to a very diverse church in Ephesus. It's made up of Jews and Gentiles. Paul's telling them to pray for one another regardless of what you think about the other group of people. In this church, there's also false teachers who are teaching that salvation is limited only to a small number of the religious people. Basically, what they were saying is, hey, because uh, you're, you're not good enough, you came a little too late, uh, salvation's not for you, you missed it. That's what, they're, that's what they're teaching here. And so to combat this issue, Paul's encouraging them, all the people of the church, not to limit their prayers, but to pray for every kind of person, even those that persecute you. Paul's instructing the church to recognize that prayer it's not some elitist, nationalistic, racist or selective practice. Instead, Paul says that there is no category of people that you should not pray for. You should pray for every kind of person. Paul also emphasizes that, that we are to pray for leaders in high positions. Within the broader category of all kinds of people, Paul takes this specific thing at the church of Ephesus. We are to pray for kings, all those who are in authority. And this urging is fascinating here when you consider that Paul is writing this letter while being under the rule of Emperor Nero. Nero was this Roman emperor who violently persecuted Christians. He's the guy that whenever he had a garden party in Rome... When it got dark out, he would light Christians on fire at the stake so he could continue his party. Terrible man, right? Yeah, but listen to what Paul is saying here. He's saying that we need to pray for him. He's the guy that would eventually martyr Paul, order the the killing of him. But regardless of that fact, Paul tells people to pray for these kings, pray for the people in positions of power, He's telling the people of the church of Ephesus Ephesus, to pray for the pagan leaders that that are out there. Pray for the kings that you suffer under. Pray for the leader that you don't agree with. That's God's will. That we pray for them. And Paul's instructions here, they're relevant for us today. You're a Christian here living in America. We are to pray for the president. Regardless of what you think about his politics or his policies, We are to love him and pray for him. And not just for him, but we are to pray for the vice president, for our senators, our governors, other government representatives, our leaders. We should pray for people who are leaders of countries like Ukraine, Russia, Israel, Iran. The Bible tells us to pray for those in authority. So are you praying for these men and women? Or are we just watching the news and get frustrated and angry? What are we doing? So Paul here, he not only tells us to whom we are to pray for, but he also tells us to, for what we are to pray for. The apostles' specific instructions were to pray for the leaders that we may live a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Now, at first glance, you might seem, that, seem like that's simple, but what Paul is saying here is, is multifaceted, Okay. One of the goals of our praying is, uh, this is the first goal, is that we should have peace amid persecution. We pray pray for our leaders in such a way that promotes peace and consequently enables the church to flourish. The flourishing, uh, this, this flourishing for the church, it's not in opposition to what the state does, but it's under protection of the state. Those in authority can provide this umbrella of peace for the church to thrive and to proclaim the gospel freely. In the first century, during the time when Paul was writing his letters, there was a period known as Pax Romana, which is translated as Roman peace. During this time, Rome allowed for roads to be built and trade routes to be established. And this literally paved the way for the gospel to spread across the entire Roman Empire. Now, it's not that the gospel can't spread amid persecution; it can. But in the context of peace, what Paul is talking about here, Christians in churches can freely live out the call that Christ uh, demonstrates, uh, the, the call of Christ, and that we the, that we are supposed to live out. And so in our day, own day here in America, we have the freedom and we have the privilege of living out the gospel freely in our country. We, we can go ahead and take that to the people. And that's a good thing. We're to pray for that. But we also need to remember to pray for our brothers and sisters in, in countries like Egypt who, where peace is uh, it's in jeopardy. We are to pray for our brothers and sisters in Saudi Arabia and North Korea where peace is almost non-existent. We are to pray that peaceful doors would be opened for the proclamation of the gospel. But there's a second goal of our praying. Not only do we pray amid persecution, for peace amid persecution, but we also pray for the salvation of our persecutors. We pray that rulers and leaders and that even the persecutors would come to a knowledge of the truth. One of the early church fathers pointed out that it is much more difficult to hate someone when we are praying for them. It's much more difficult to hate someone when we are praying for them. We're less likely to despise them and to react negatively against them. When we pray for someone, we can actually begin to develop a love for that person, even though you might not agree what that person stands for. But we pray for them. This is the picture that Paul is painting here at the start of 1 Timothy chapter 2. It leads to this important implication for us that the progress of the gospel in the world is dependent on the prayers of God's people in the church. While salvation, it ultimately belongs to God, and even our prayers are his working in us through the Holy Spirit, God has chosen to use the prayers of his people to accomplish his will. That is what he has chosen to do. And and we desperately need to hear that truth today. We are surrounded by people from our own city and from those who are, are, are all around the world who are lost and who are perishing, who are on the way to everlasting suffering. We want them to know eternal satisfaction in Christ. We, we're on this life-saving mission to take the gospel to him. The Bible encourages us, it urges us to pray for these people. This leads us into our second point, which is the purpose of prayer. God, or Paul has told us, God through Paul has told us, to whom we pray for, and to what we are to pray for. But what drives us to pray in this way? This is where verses 3 through 6 come in. Paul writes this, This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires that all people be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. When we look behind the purpose for why we pray, we see two realities. The first is that we pray because God desires the salvation for all people. That's verse 4. Listen again. Uh, Take a a look at verses 3 through 4. Paul writes, This is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. When we begin to pray for all kinds of people in the world to be saved, whether that be Jew or Gentile, Friends or enemies, Democrats or Republicans, people who are unreached people groups, people who are reached people groups, our heart comes in line with the heart of God himself because he desires their salvation. We pray because God desires the salvation of all people. Now I want to take a moment to discuss what this means and also what it does not mean because this is part of the debate that I was referencing earlier. First, what this does not mean this does not mean that all will be saved. Some people have used this passage to argue for universalism, the belief that all people will be saved. This is the thought where, hey, there are many roads, many different paths, but all lead to God. That's not the case, right? Uh, The reasoning for this runs like something like this. Because God desires that all people are saved, and God always gets what he desires, then all will be saved. That's the reasoning. But this reasoning is not what our passage today or Scripture as a whole teaches. Scripture is clear that we are saved only by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, Ephesians 2. And only those who trust in his salvation will experience eternal life, John 3. In addition, what this does not mean, it does not mean that God's will has failed. In addition to the concept of universalism, there are some people who make uh, some of the following assumptions. That if God desires all people to be saved and not all people are saved, then ultimately God is not in control of everything in the world. That's the second uh, assumption that gets made. And again, that's clearly not true. From beginning to end, scripture is clear that God is sovereign over all things and that his will cannot be thwarted. We see that in Job. And so we've seen that God's desire for all to be saved, it doesn't lead to this universalism. It also doesn't mean that he's not in control of things. But what it does mean is that God loves all people. It is clear from verses 3 through 4 that God loves all people. He desires for the salvation. We, We find this in other passages as well. 2 Peter 3.9 says that the Lord is patient with us, not wanting any to perish, but to come to repentance. The prophet Ezekiel, he also writes this, I take no pleasure in the depth of the wicked, but rather that the wicked person should turn from his way and live. Repent, repent of your evil ways. Why will you die, house of Israel? So because God desires the salvation for all people, we must pray for the salvation for all people. When we pray for our lost family members, for our friends, for our neighbors, for our enemies, for people groups who are hostile to the gospel, we pray that God pray, knowing that God loves them and that he desires their salvation. That's the first reality that we see in this passage. But here's the second. The second reality for our prayer. We pray because Christ died for the rescue of all people. Verses 5 through 6 say this For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is a testimony at the proper time. Given at the proper time. And in this verse here, we see this word ransom, and this word stands out. When we see this word, it literally refers to the price that is to be paid for the rescue or the release of a prisoner. And that's the gospel in a nutshell. God, the one who is completely holy in all his ways and completely just in all of his judgment, stands against us who are sinners and who are completely deserving of all of his judgment. Therefore, we're in desperate need of a mediator who, who would pay our ransom. Enter Jesus. Jesus, he is unique in who he is. He is the perfect mediator because he's able to identify with both parties here. No one, is, no one else is able or qualified to represent both God and mankind. He is fully able to identify with God because he is divine, fully God. But yet at the same time, he is fully able to identify with humanity since he himself is human. Jesus was and is fully human like us in every way, yet with one big distinction, that he was without sin. He is uniquely qualified to stand in the middle in order to bring together both God and man. So not only is he unique in who he is, he is also unique in what he did. Jesus, he paid this ransom by dying for us. He did not deserve the death. He, he had no sin, but he died even though that mankind alone owed the price. We are sinners, and we are the ones who deserve to die, but the reality is we could not pay the price. Only God could pay this price, and Christ, he took this full payment of sin upon himself, and in the process rescued us from sin and from death. The payment was paid, the rescue was made. Finally, not only is Jesus unique in who he is, not only is he unique in what he did, But Jesus is unique in what he continues to do. Jesus is not just the mediator in the past when he died on the cross. He is our mediator right now at the Father's right hand. Jesus intercedes for us, standing before God on our behalf. He is the constant, continual means by which we approach the throne of God. With that being said, there are two extremely important realities for why we pray. We pray because God desires the salvation for all people. And we pray because Christ died for the rescue of all people. That's why we pray. This leads us to the final point this morning. So far we've talked about uh, the fact that prayer is a priority, and we've talked about the purpose behind that prayer. But let's take a look at now what it means to be a person of prayer. Looking back on verse 7, Paul writes this, For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I'm not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and in truth. In verse 7, Paul talks specifically here about his own unique role as an apostle. He first refers to himself as a preacher of the gospel message. Now preacher, it can be translated as uh, meaning herald. Um, So whether it's herald or preacher, in either case, the word is is used to refer to someone who is going to make an important announcement. This is like an announcer at an athletic event or a political messenger in a royal court. Paul is heralding or announcing the gospel message. In addition, uh, Paul was specifically called to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. But when he writes this, he clarifies this with a statement saying, I am telling the truth. I am not lying. And this seems to be an odd thing to say. Paul has already declared his apostolic authority in chapter 1. But the purpose for Paul writing this was to, again, combat the false teachers that are present in the church of Ephesus. At this time, these false teachers, they had excluded the, the Gentiles in the offer of salvation, like we talked about earlier. And so for this reason, uh, Paul's emphasizing that God has sent him to be an apostle, to be a preacher and a teacher to the Gentiles. And he insists that the people not listen to this false doctrine of these teachers, but that they would believe in the true gospel of Jesus Christ, which included the Gentiles. It included them. And this ties back to Paul's point that, that, that not only prayer, but the gospel is for every kind of person even though Paul was talking specifically about his unique role as an apostle. But what he said in a large part applies to every every single follower of Christ. As we pray for all kinds of people, we preach the gospel to all kinds of people. We know that God desires the salvation of of all people. We we, we know that he is worthy of their praise, and we, we know that Christ died for their rescue. So we should not only pray, but we should share the gospel with everyone. Paul shifts his attention now in verse eight. Still discussing prayer, he now spe- spe- speaks directly to the men of the church of Ephesus. He says this, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. In this verse, Paul is addressing a specific problem, uh, a specific situation that was evident at the church in Ephesus. Ephesus. Paul talked about the men who were either not leading a prayer at all or who were praying at the church while fighting with one another, ultimately disrupting the teaching and the leadership and the church in some sort of way. So in response to this, Paul says that they should be lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. With the emphasis here not so much on the posture of prayer, but rather the purity of our prayer. Paul wanted these men to pray in every place with purity before God. In the church of Ephesus, these false teachers, they had stirred up conflict within the church. And instead of responding in a Christ-like way, the men responded with anger and fighting and quarreling amongst themselves, causing disruption. And for this reason, Paul instructs these people to pray with purity before God. So what is this purity that Paul is referencing here? I'm going to offer two examples from the Psalms that speak to this. The first one comes from Psalm 24. The psalmist writes, Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart. Psalm 26 says something similar. I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, Lord. Lord. In both of these passages here, the psalmist is emphasizing the need for God's people to be pure. In Psalm 26 specifically, the psalmist talks about going around the altar. This is in a reference to the Old Testament worship where the people would go wash their hands in the pools that were provided before they prayed. And this this act was a picture of them cleansing their hearts before God. So we see that purity is essential as we seek to go before the Lord. Now, even uh, when we look at this, it makes no sense then that we hold on to sin in our lives while we approach a holy God in prayer. Instead, Paul's point here is that we humbly confess our sin, be cleansed uh, by the mercy of God through Christ, and then pray with purity before God even though Paul here is specifically addressing men in the church of Ephesus, this principle, it applies to all believers. It applies to every single person. When we come before God at all times in our prayer, we are to pray with purity in our hearts. That's what the person of prayer should look like. And for this reason, the followers of Christ, we need to ask ourselves this, a this, uh, few questions. When we pray, are we coming before the Lord with a pure heart? Is there a deliberate sin that I'm holding on to in my life that, 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 that disconnects me in my prayer to God? Is there anything in my life right now that is unreconciled with another brother or sister in Christ? Or with anyone for that matter? In today's world, we, we tend to rush into worship and we rush into prayer. Many times passing uh, the need for us to honestly confess our sin before God. But a right heart attitude, it's critical for prayer. It, it, for God honoring worship in the church, it's, it is so crucial. So by the grace of Christ, let our hearts be clean before the Lord. As we close today, I want to remind us that our prayers, they really are powerful. God has called each of us to be people of prayer who make prayer a priority in our lives. God has chosen to use the prayers of his people to accomplish his will. We are to pray for and proclaim the gospel to all kinds of people because God desires their salvation. We live in a culture, it's, it's so marked by rampant sexual immorality, skyrocketing divorce, the degradation of marriage, confusion of gender, addiction to pornography, and abortion, which takes the lives of millions of unborn babies each year. These are just a few of the examples. And in response to this culture, we as the church are to be people of prayer who seek to pray for our leaders, our neighbors, our families, and every other kind of person in this world. Why? Because as one pastor puts it, nothing of eternal value is ever accomplished without prayer. Our task as followers of Christ is to go out into this very fallen world and to pray. And when we pray, we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to all in this fallen world. Let's pray. Father God, I just want to thank you for this time, Lord. As we look to what it means to pray and we look to see how prayer should be a priority in our lives, may you guide us in that. Holy Spirit, lead us to know what to pray for Show us where to go, where our feet should should walk. Because God, there are so many in this world who need you. There are many in this world who are destined for eternal suffering. And Father, I pray that we are able to go and, and take the gospel to them. Help us, Jesus, to be messengers of your truth, that we may go and we may herald this message to the world guide our steps in all things and inevitably whenever we come across difficulties lord may you carry us through those difficulties and guide our paths in all things strengthen us give us the wisdom and the knowledge of your son jesus christ fathers we uh, take this offering lord may we may we collect this offering for no other purpose than to further your kingdom that we may be able to impact the lives of our lives of our community, the lives of our family here at church. May these funds not be used for anything but glorifying your Son. Be with us, Jesus. Holy Spirit, be, with, be within us. And Father, continue to watch over us in all things. It is in the name of your Son Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen.